All right, if you would take your Bibles and turn with me to Paul's first letter to the church at Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We've been in this series for quite a while entitled What We Believe, defining what it is that we believe as individual Christians and as a church. For the last couple of weeks, we have been looking at what's going to come at the culmination of human history at the end of this age. All of history is really God's story. History is His story. It all belongs to God. God is weaving it all together for His good eternal purpose in spite of evil and all, and it is all going to culminate at a time of His choosing. Time will not always be as it is now. The world as we know it will not always be as it is now. The Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 3 verse 21 says, Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. The world will not end, but the world as we know it will not always be. There is a coming change. Glory to God, there will be a time when time will be no more. There will be, there is coming a day when the devil will be no more. No more will he be able to seek and deceive. No more will he be that roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. There is coming a day when sin will be no more. Oh, I cannot fathom. And how much I look forward to the day when there will be no more sin. And there's coming a day when there will be no more, no more death. And for the last two weeks, we've looked at the final destiny of the wicked. We've seen through the scriptures in great detail just what awaits those who die in their sin and have to face the Lord on judgment day. Two weeks ago, we looked at the finality of the great white throne judgment. On that day, there will be no arguing. There will be no mercy to be found. There will only be one verdict rendered, and that will be guilty. And that verdict will be final. Last week, we looked at what happens when that guilty sinner, when that verdict, when that guilty verdict is rendered. The sinner will be then cast into a place of imprisonment called hell. A place of complete torment, physically, spiritually, emotionally, mentally, all the above. And the length of their sentence will be forever. Conscious, eternal punishment awaits all that die without their sin being paid by Christ. And now, after two weeks of bad news, we get to some good news. What is it that awaits those who have had their sin washed away by the blood of Jesus? What awaits those that have had the redemptive work of Christ applied to their charge? That will be our focus today as we look at Paul's first letter to the church at Thessalonica in chapter 4. And I've got to tell you, this passage is very special to me. This is a very special passage to me. It is one of the first few verses that I memorized when I became a Christian. 
When the Lord saved my soul and I got hungry for the Word and I dove into the Word and actually began to study it, this passage captivated my heart because it is one of the many passages that tells the one that has been redeemed by Christ has a future filled with hope. So look with me, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And let's read verses 13 through 18. Hear now the word of the true and living God. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them into the clouds and meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. Let's pray. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, we have read your holy, inspired, infallible, and inerrant word. God, I pray that through the power of the Holy Spirit, you would open our eyes to its meaning, open our hearts to its truth. Help us to do what the Holy Spirit impressed upon the Apostle Paul when he penned these words, to walk in hope. For the believer in Jesus Christ, we have hope. Glory to God for it. Guide us as we talk about it. Enrich our hearts. Help us to be encouraged. Help us to be edified. Help us to be inspired. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I wanted to go ahead and get right into this passage. And I want to divide this up into six Six points, six points of, uh, um, six headings of hope in this passage. Point number one, verses 13 and 14, we see there a reliance. We see the reliance. Look again at what it says. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. The word reliance, I chose that word because it means dependence on or trust in someone or something. I chose that word because the believer has something that we can depend on. We depend on the word of God. We depend on Christ who is the eternal living word. Therefore, we trust and are dependent upon Christ. And if you do, then you have hope. Paul tells us in the passage in verse 14, for how does a person have this hope that the rest of the world does not have? For it says there, he says there in verse 14, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, that belief gives us hope. 
Belief in Christ equals hope. And it matters. It matters greatly what Christ it is a person believes in. It must be the real Jesus of the Bible. Several weeks ago, I, I told you about it, how I had a conversation on a street corner in Danville about uh, down there next to the farmer's market. Uh, uh, um, I had a conversation with some Jehovah's Witnesses, and, and, and one of the things they asked me was, do you believe that if someone does not believe in the Trinitarian view of God, that they will go to hell? My direct answer was yes. Absolutely. If you do not believe and put your faith in the God of this book, you have no faith. You have a false faith. You have a false hope because you believe in a false God. There is only one real Jesus Christ. And it is the one that has been revealed to us in the pages of Holy Scripture. And for, with belief in Christ, it generates hope. It generates hope. Belief in Christ equals hope. No belief in Christ equals no hope. For the believer, Paul tells us in this passage, for the believer in Jesus Christ, death is not the end. Death is not the end. When we talked about it for, for the last several weeks, death is not the end for the believer or the unbeliever alike. But for the believer, death is not the end. Death is a promotion. It's being promoted to headquarters. Sure, there is suffering for the loss of the loved one's uh, the, the ones left behind suffer loss, sure. There is pain when we lose a loved one. We're in pain because we love them and we're in pain more than anything because they loved us. But because of the work of Jesus Christ in His incarnation, in His sinless life, in His atoning death, in His victorious resurrection, there is comfort in that pain. There is comfort in that pain. There is hope in that pain. And it is a hope that will one day not be hope any longer. It will be reality. And I do not, I say this very often, I do not know how a person can exist in this world without Jesus Christ. They cannot properly understand and process death. And if you listen to the way that people that are lost talk about death, they'll attach all manner of lies and false connotations with death to try to soothe their conscience, to try to ease their mind, to try to take their mind and heart away from the truth. They'll say things like that when a person dies, they become their guardian angel. That is false. You find that nowhere in the Bible. And I'll tell you this, if that were true then that person would be taking a step down in the hierarchy of God's love. You study that Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And if there is such a passage, please come show it to me because I don't know where it's at. You do not read anywhere in that Bible where God says He loves the angelic beings. They are servants. They are created with a purpose to serve Him, to carry out His bidding. But who do you see God express His love for? Mankind, men and women, he proved his love in the cross. And what, and what else do we know? Salvation is not offered to the fallen angels. 
Salvation is not offered to Satan and the third of the angelic beings that he convinced to rebel with him when they were cast out of heaven. That's probably one of the reasons why they hate us like they do. It's because God's love is not extended toward the angelic creatures. Now, we do know that from the whole of Scripture that God is love. He's perfect love, holy love. So sure, He loves all of His creation. But the apple of God's I, his Mona Lisa, the one that he loves more than anything apart from the love that there is in that shared within the Trinity. God loves mankind. God loves people. So no, when a person dies, they do not become a guardian angel. They do not send blessings to people from beyond the grave. And when people attribute power and blessing when they attribute that to other people they are robbing it from God when we die we are not giving some God-like type power no that is only power ability and authority that is ascribed to God Almighty so the, the loss brings those things um into their mindset because they're, as the text says, they have no hope. The lost have no hope. Death is not a promotion for the lost. They died once and will face the second death at the great white throne. But for the believer, we may grieve now when we lose somebody, but it's a, it's a grief with hope in it. It is a hope filled grief as I say every time I stand before a broken hearted family that is mourning the loss of someone who has gone on to be with the Lord for the believer it's never goodbye it's never goodbye it's just see you later point number two so we see we see a reliance we also see a return look what it says in verse 16 for the Lord himself shall descend Now, this is not referring to the second coming. The rapture and the second coming often get confused, but they are two separate uh, events. Sometimes it's difficult to determine whether a passage of Scripture is referring to the rapture or the second coming. The second coming occurs after the rapture and after the tribulation. In Revelation chapter 6 through 19, you read about uh, uh, um, the great tribulation. The second coming recorded in Revelation chapter 19. We read it this past Wednesday night. The second coming is when that eastern sky will split. The Lord will physically return on that majestic white horse. He will climb down off of that majestic white horse and plant both of his feet on the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem. After the rapture, after the seven years of tribulation. So what is this? Return here, and why is it important to differentiate between those two events? Well, if the rapture and the second coming are the same events, then believers will have to go through the tribulation. But First Thessalonians five, if you flip over and look real quick, look what it says. It says, "For God has not appointed us for wrath." but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. That means that we're escaping the wrath that will come with eternity in hell, but also escaping that terrible wrath that is to come for those seven years when we're told that he who now restrains will restrain until he is taken out of the way. The church is not referred to anywhere in the Bible as he. The 
church is always referred to in female's tense as the bride with Jesus Christ being the bridegroom. So this he that is restraining is the Holy Spirit. And when the Lord returns in the sky and he gives that shout of the rapture, the Holy Spirit's going to take us that are alive and remain out of here. And as he leaves, he's removing all restraints from this place. And for the wrath of God that will be revealed in those seven years. And praise God, his church will get to escape that. And in describing the tribulation period, you look in the, in, in, in the period in, uh, in Revelation, chapter 6 to 19, there's no mention of the church. In fact, there's no mention of the church anymore after Revelation chapter 4 where uh, uh, John is told to come up hither. That's a, a, a reference that points to that points to the rapture. So even though these two events are distinct, these two events are eventual. They will take place. They will one day take place. It's not a matter of if the Lord will return. It is only a matter of when the Lord returns. And as sure as I'm standing here, and you are sitting there, Jesus Christ is coming back. He is coming again. And you know, it's been said in recent years that we don't hear much about the Lord's return. We don't hear preachers on television talk about the coming of the Lord anymore like they used to in years past. Everyone nowadays wants five steps to better finances, seven steps to a better marriage, Ten ways to be happy and not have a boo-boo face. But preachers don't preach the return of the Lord because it's unnerving. It's unsettling. Even for people who profess to be a Christian. Why? I've talked about that reason for the last several weeks. It can be summed up in one word. Final. It's final. The return of the Lord equals finality. There are no second chances. No do-overs for the saved and the unsaved alike. And I will explain more about what I mean that for the saved in a moment. But think about this. Think about this for just a minute. We need to live in light of the Lord's return. You and I need to live in light of the Lord's coming return. What you and I do matters. Now, no man knows the day nor the hour in which the Lord will return. And every time some Yahoo tries to come up with a mathematical scheme or claim he's had some vision or this, that, and the other, it makes us look foolish because the day will come and pass and it makes us as the church look foolish because no man knows the day nor the hour. But let's get hypothetical for just a minute. Just a minute. What if the Lord did discharge the archangel Michael or Gabriel to come here at the end of the service and tell us exactly when the Lord was going to return? And the message that we were given was going to be one year from today. How much different would our lives look? How much differently would we spend each day would we live with more fervor and vigor? Would we be more intentional with what we do and what we say? Or would we just be tempted? Well, 
That's 365 days that I get, I have to hide out. So I'm just going to stock up on food and water and I'm just going to ride it out at the house. Or would we live with fervency, with the knowledge of knowing he's coming back? I've got a message I've got to get out. I've got people I've got to warn. There are people that I know that aren't right with the Lord. I've got to warn them. Because that is how our lives should be, even without knowing the day or the hour of His return. Because if we are Christians, then we believe everything that is written in this book We may not all understand it all, but we believe it all by faith. So if we believe Romans chapter 10 verse 9 that says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and you believe in your heart that God had raised Him from the dead, that thou shalt be saved, then you know what else we should believe? Revelation chapter 22 verse 20 where the Lord Jesus says, Yes, I am coming quickly. Well, he's been coming quickly for 2,000 years. Where's the, where, where's the promise of his coming? Remember, one day with the Lord is like a 1,000 years here. And a 1,000 years here is like a day with the Lord. Our timetable and his will, may not ever meet up, but it one, uh, it, we may not ever understand it, what I mean. But one day it's going to meet and he will return. And our lives should be lived in such a way that embody the second part of Revelation 22 verse 20. There's a response there that John gives at the end of Revelation 22 verse 20. Jesus says, yes, I am coming quickly. We should live our lives in that response that says, amen, come Lord Jesus. Point number three, there's going to be a resurrection. Verses 14 through 16, look what it says. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Fallen asleep, that means have died. What a beautiful way to put that. What a beautiful way to put that. The believers in Christ fall asleep in the Lord. For if we say to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede or prevent those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God and the dead in Christ shall rise first. There was a fear at the time of Paul writing this there in Thessalonica that if you were not alive at the rapture or if you were not alive at the return of Christ, you were going to miss a blessing. So the Holy Spirit impressed upon Paul to put those fears to rest. If you belong to the Lord, you're going to be blessed whether you are raptured out of here or whether you have already gone on to be with Him by way of death. Verse 14, at the rapture, those that have died will be waiting on those that have not died to meet them at Jesus. To meet in the air with Jesus. At the second coming, all the saved will return with Jesus. So no matter whether you are one of those who are alive and remain or one of those who are already be with the Lord, you're going to have a tremendous vantage point. You're going to have a tremendous vantage point of the great and 
awesome day when God calls His church out of here. Verse 5, verse 15, that's what Paul says. That's what Paul says. He says, Paul says, those that are chosen by God to be of the generation of the church that is raptured out of here, they don't have a leg up on those that have already died. They don't have a leg up on, they're not going to see something special. The, the speciality of it is going to be Jesus, being with Jesus. Now let's follow the events of verse 16. Let's follow the sequence of, of events. For it says, the Lord himself shall descend, not fully, not the second coming, but he descends just enough to do what? Shout. And it's not going to be a shout filled with fear. It's not going to be a shout of defeat. It's going to be a victorious shout with the sound of a trumpet. And a sounding trumpet blast means victory. And in Revelation 4, we see the words of come up hither. It will be a victorious shout that commands action. What's the action that's going to happen? Well, we see the next thing. The dead in Christ shall rise first. Now, how do we reconcile that to, with the passage that says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord? Well, for the Christian, it is the body that dies. When the body, when we die, when the body dies, we leave it behind and are immediately in the presence of the Lord. Immediately after death, the believer is in the presence of the Lord awaiting this day that we're reading about. The bodies of all those who have died in Christ will in the twinkling of an eye be resurrected out of the grave. Oh, and think of all this. I don't want to be here left behind and see it happen. I hope the Lord will, 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 will let us see it later on in eternity. But all of the cemeteries are going to explode, burst open with all of the dead in Christ coming out of them. And you know, this is just my own thinking, so take it with a grain of salt. Only those who are believers in Christ are going to hear the shout of the Lord in that trumpet. But I think everybody else left behind is going to hear something as well. They're going to hear the unifying, exploding boom of all of the graves and the mausoleums and all of the urns busting open all over the world that house the remains of all of the dead in Christ. And you think about it, God is going to gather the, the, the remains of all of his uh, dead that have lived all throughout the ages. In the twinkling of an eye, cemeteries will explode open. Mausoleums will bust open. The ones up in, in Danville, up around uh, the north main part of Danville where the armory is, there's a cemetery there. I think it's Highland Cemetery. My grandfather's buried there. But I think of it because it has individual uh, uh, mausoleums, concrete rebar mausoleums. I think about that when I think of this passage. The door's going to burst open off of those things and the dead in Christ are coming out of them. I think about those kind of like at Roselawn where you can walk inside of it and the, and, the, and, the, and, the, and the dead are put in the wall, put in the wall behind, they're concreted into the wall. Those things are going to explode open. The caskets are going to explode open and the dead in Christ are going to rise and meet the Lord in the air. And people have always kind of, kind of some Christian people have kind of wondered, well, what about cremation? What about uh, cremation? The Bible does not forbid uh, the cremating a body. 
And some people think, well, well, God won't have nothing to resurrect them because it'll be ashes. Think about this. Think about, say, somebody like John the Baptist or the Apostle Paul or the Apostle John. What do you think their remains are right now? Dust. And so if our God, who formed Adam out of the dirt, he can pull a body from anywhere stretched across no matter how many locations, whether they're spread upon mountains, spread in the sea, God will work a miraculous event on this day. But when the shout, when the Lord shouts, the first thing that happens is the dead in Christ will rise first to meet with their spirit body, to meet with their spirit in the air, to meet with that spirit and receive that glorified body that we will serve the Lord in for all eternity. All of you that have aches and pains and all of this different stuff, and have to take all of this medicine, and if the Lord allows me to live, I'm probably going to face that too one day. There's coming a day in time when you're going to get a brand new body. You're not going to get a refurbished or an overhaul one, but you're going to get one that's never going to need another pair of glasses. You're going to get one that's never going to have to take another shot for diabetes. You're going to get a body that's never going to ever wear down, break down, get hurt, get sick, or die ever again. At the rapture of the church, because the grave could not hold Jesus down, the grave will not hold the bodies of the dead in Christ down either. Point number four, verse 17. We've seen the reliance, we've seen the return, we've seen the resurrection, and now we see the rapture. We see the rapture of the Lord's church. Look what it says. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them into the clouds and meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Now, there are mockers of those of us who are... Uh, Premillennial uh, of in eschatology, we believe in the premillennial uh, rapture of the church. There are people that make fun of us and say, "Well, that word rapture is just nowhere in the Bible." Neither is the word Trinity. Neither is the word Trinity. But you can make the you see the doctrine of the Trinity all through the Bible, and you see the doctrine of the rapture throughout in places of the Scripture as well. The word. Uh, uh, rapture is a Latin word. It means a carrying off, a transport, or a snatching away. And the concept of carrying off or the rapture is clearly taught to us here in the Scriptures. We see it here. We see it in 1 Corinthians 15. The rapture of the church is the event in which God snatches away all believers from the earth in order to make way for His righteous judgment to be poured out on the earth during the tribulation period. The rapture will involve an instantaneous transformation of all of the believers' bodies to be fit for eternity. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 says, we, we know that when He, when Christ appears, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. That's that glorified body. That's that brand new glorified body that we will be able to look at the face of God 
we will be able to look at the face of our Lord Jesus Christ and we won't be like Isaiah and have to say, woe is me. We will be able to embrace that because when we see Him, we shall be like Him. We shall see Him as He is. And the doctrine of the rapture is not uh, specifically taught in the Old Testament, although there are some foreshadowings of it. You look in the book of Genesis at the, uh, the life of a man by the name of Enoch. Enoch walked so close to, with the Lord, so close with the Lord that God just took him right on into heaven and he bypassed death. Then there's Elijah the prophet, 2 Kings. He was taken up in a chariot of fire. So we see kind of hints of the rapture there. The rapture was not specifically spelled out, and that's why Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 51 through 55, Paul calls it a mystery. He says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, you can't capture the speed of that with a radar gun. It is so fast. It is, with, it, it is faster than the blinking of an eye. Just, a, just a, a half a blink and it will, this will take place. In the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. So at the rapture, the trumpet sounds, the dead in Christ rise first, then the rest of the body of Christ that is alive at that time are caught up, carried away to be with the Lord, given brand new bodies. But it will also be a time when the believers will stand before the judgment bar of God. I've talked to you. I said that there were two judgments, one for the believers, one for the unbelievers. We've talked about the unbelievers uh, at the judgment, uh, at the great white throne judgment. The believers will stand when the church is raptured. We will stand before what is called the Bema seat or the judgment seat of Christ. The church will be raptured, carried into the presence of the Lord to stand before Him and give an account. Listen to these words. Romans chapter 14, verse 10. For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For as it is written, as I live, says the Lord to me, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Paul tells the church at Corinth that in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, he says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Judgment seat of God, judgment seat of Christ, interchangeable. Same judgment, same person, Jesus is God. So for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. The judgment seat of Christ is not, is not, uh, does not determine salvation. It's not a judgment for whether or not somebody is saved. It's a judgment only for those who've been bought, purchased by the blood of the Lamb. First John chapter 2 verse 2, we're told that Jesus is our propitiation. He's that sacrifice that's made the atonement for our sin. All of our sin has, be, has been forgiven. 
Romans 8 verse 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus himself said in John chapter 5 verse 24, Verily I tell you the truth, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. So if this is not a judgment uh, 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 a courtroom of condemnation, what will be judged at the judgment seat? Our works will be judged. What you and I did with Christ after we were saved. Let me read to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 10. It says, but each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no one can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident, for the day will indicate it because it is revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. But listen to this. He himself will be saved, yet as though through fire. So it's not a determination of whether or not someone is saved. That was taken care of at the cross. What is judged here is how did we live for Jesus? It will be a time of examination and a time of reward. The Lord will inspect our works. He will, he will inspect and what will be judged is how did we use what God gave us? How did we use our time? How did we use the talent that He gave us? How did we use our words? How did we use our actions? Did we live for the glory of God? What did we do with the resources that He gave us? How faithful were we? Were we yielded to the Spirit? Were we seeking to honor Christ and further His work in the world? If so, we will have a reward. Did we neglect our opportunities to serve the Lord? If so, we will suffer loss of reward. And at the rapture of the church... The great, the, 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 the judgment seat of Christ will take place. So we get the glorified body and we, and, and, and the, the believers will be awarded one or more of five crowns. One or more of five crowns. The first is the imperishable crown. The imperishable crown. The apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 and 25, it says, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives a prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Now everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible crown. The first crown is the incorruptible or imperishable crown. This reward is promised to those who victoriously run the race of life. Take, uh, take into consideration what I just read uh, it, uh, there in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. In verse 26, he says, Therefore I run in such a way that as not without aim... 
I buffet, I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. It is clear that the reward will be awarded to those believers who consistently bring their flesh, who yield their flesh to the control of the Holy Spirit. The second crown is the crown of exaltation. The crown of exaltation, 1 Thessalonians 2, 19 and 20 says, For who is our hope or joy or crown of boasting? Is it not even you before our Lord Jesus that is coming? For you are our glory and our joy. The crown of exaltation, that's the soul winner's crown. That's the soul winner's crown. The, the, the crown will be uh, over with its recipients will glory and will rejoice. Paul uh, talked about rejoicing at the the church of Philippi and the church of Thessalonica because he led those two, the people that made up those two bodies of believers to the Lord and discipled them in the faith. And our Lord will distribute this crown to those servants who are faithful to proclaim the gospel, who are faithful to share their faith and lead souls to Christ and help discipline them in the faith. The third crown is the crown of righteousness. The crown of righteousness. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8 says, In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. But not only me, but also those who loved His appearing. There is a righteous or a crown of righteousness that await those all who each day look for and anticipate the return of Jesus. All those who anticipate what we're talking about right here in the rapture of the church, there'll be a reward for those who look forward with great expectation and great love and great fervor for that day when Christ will call His church out of here and then the day when He will imminently return. They anxiously look forward to that day. They live out that response of Revelation twenty two twenty. They say, Amen, come, Lord Jesus. The fourth crown is the crown of glory. Crown of glory. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 4 says, When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. This is a reward that is promised to those who faithfully shepherd the flock, who faithfully shepherd the flocks of God as, as His under-shepherds. Those under-shepherds who fulfill their qualifications, willingness, self, sacrificial dedication, humility, and, and an exemplary life will receive the crown of glory. And finally, there's the crown of life. This talked about in James chapter 1, verse 12. The wonderful reward that awaits the saints who have suffered in a noble manner during their earthly life. They have suffered for the cause of Christ. They have suffered with perseverance under trial, but also the words of those... Uh, uh, they've suffered un, uh, under uh, perseverance under trial by a world that, is, that hates Christ, hates the gospel. This crown is not, it's not promised simply to those who endure suffering and trials, but those who endure their trials loving the Savior all the way through them. And you know, 
not because there's a crown that awaits that, but that should be our mindset. And it's hard. It's hard to do like James says, and it's the Holy Spirit through James to count it all joy that you're going through various trials and temptations. That's hard. That's hard. But we should be seeking God's face for Him to help us grow, shape us, mold us, move us, transform us so that we get to that point. So that we say, thank you, Lord, that you've allowed this to come. I don't like it. I don't like it. But by the grace of God, I'll get through it. And Lord, there's a purpose in you doing this. I don't know what it is totally in the grand scheme, but I know what a portion of it is. You've allowed this to come to my doorstep because you want me to get closer to you. That should be our mindset. And, and think about this. So we get a glorified body. We'll be rewarded with crowns. But then what are we going to do with those glorified by, in those glorified bodies and with those crowns? We're told in Revelation chapter 4, beginning in verse 9. It says, And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who sits on the throne, to Him who lives forever, the 24 elders will fall down before Him who sits on the throne and will worship Him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne of God, saying, Worthy are You, our Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and because of your will they existed and were created. Yes, the judgment seat of Christ will be a time of judging the rewards. The rapture of the church will be a time of, of receiving that glorified body. But what are we going to do in those glorified bodies? What are we going to do with those rewards? We're going to worship for all eternity and Cast those rewards in an act of worship at the feet of the one who enabled us to do them. And worship of our God. Again, listen to me. I'm going to say it again. What we do matters. What we do matters. It matters for eternity. Even the mundane stuff that we don't think about, that we don't think, how can this possibly have eternal value? It does. How you live for Christ matters and we're to live every facet of our life to the glory of God. How husbands love their wives matters. How the husband loves her wife matters. How the wife loves her husband matters. How we love our children and grandchildren matters. It matters how we work on our jobs it matters how you spend your retirement years. Those of you that have already been able to leave work. It matters what you do in your free time. It matters what you do with all of your time. Because it's not yours, it's His. It matters with what you do with what He has given you. And now I know that there, I know how people think. I know how people think. I know there are people to say, well, I've got that fire insurance policy. I'll be one of the ones that are, yes, saved, but so by, by fire. I've got the fire insurance policy. I'm good. I don't need to serve. I don't need to get involved. I don't need to do anything this preacher says. If I lose some reward, fine. At least I'm in the door. Well, you have that mindset on the day. 
but not like the unrighteous who will stand before the Lord in fear, but we who know Christ as Savior will stand before Him and see all of that majesty, all of that power, all of that goodness, and all of that love, perfect love. We're told in the book of Revelation, chapter 21, verse 4, that Jesus will wipe away all tears. Why are we going to be crying? Why are we going to be crying when we stand before Him? It's not going to be tears of joy specifically because we're so happy to see all of the other loved ones that have gone on before us. Yeah, that'll be joy. But you know what's going to happen at that time? For, and it should be that way now. But we're going to see Him for who He is and the importance that these other people were to us is going to pale, not even pale in comparison to how important He should be to us. And so why will He have to wipe tears from our eyes? Could it be? Could it be that we will look upon the One who was pierced on our behalf who did so much for us, who endured so much for us, gave us so much, gave so much of Himself, and we'll look at Him and we'll have tears of regret saying, I should have done more. I should have done more. But you look at what the passages that I've just read. Be saved yet though by fire. You won't hear on that day the Lord Jesus say, yeah, you, you should have. He'll just receive you to come on in. And he's going to lovingly wipe away those tears of regret. Why have them? If we know now that that day is coming, that day is imminent, God will rapture His church. We will stand before His Bema seat, before His judgment seat. We will see Him in His fullest if He has saved our souls and He has so much awaiting us in that place called heaven. Why not put our hands to the plow so that we would be able to have something to say, Lord, I know you did it. You did it in the grand scheme of it all. Because except the Lord build the house, we labor in vain. But God, here it is. I lay this at your feet to worship you. Point number five, verse 17. We see a reunion. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. One day, and it might be sooner than we realize, there's going to be a reunion, the likes of which that you and I have never experienced. I know some of you have family reunions quite often, probably not as often as, as you used to because that happens when certain ones pass away. The traditions kind of stop, right? But, but, and, 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 um, but there's, going to, there's a coming reunion. 
the likes of which that you and I cannot even fathom. And we're going to be introduced to more brothers and sisters than we knew that we had from every tribe, tongue, kindred, and nation all through time. That there will be a reunion. I look forward to the day that I'm going to be able to see my maternal grandfather, Riley Walker, again. And he's not going to have diabetes. And he's not going to have congestive heart failure. And he's not going to be on dialysis. I look forward to the day when I get to see Tom Blackard and my stepfather. And he's not going to have heart problems. And we're going to worship together at the feet of Jesus. I look forward to the day with that reunion at the rapture of the church where we'll be able to put faces with all the ones that we've read about in Scripture. We'll be able to meet John the Baptist. We'll be able to meet the Apostle John. We'll meet Isaiah. We'll get to put a face with Stephen from Acts. But that's not the crux. That's not the the greatest point of the passage. Yes, there's going to be a reunion. But the, the, the blessing, the emphasis is not the meeting of the church together. It's the meeting of the church with the Lord. It's the meeting of the church with her Messiah. It will be a meeting of the people of God with their God. And look what it says. We who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we always be with the Lord. It will never, ever end. It's a reunion that will never, ever end. In verse 18, then we see the reassurance. Verse 18, we see the reassurance. It says, wherefore, comfort one another with these words. When you get discouraged, think about this passage. Open up the Bible until you memorize it and remember these words. There's hope for us in Jesus. There's a coming hope. Yeah, but I'm going through some bad stuff. It's going to end. I promise you it will. Either he's going to get you through it, bring you out on the other side stronger, or he's going to take you on to glory to be with him. We, there is hope in this passage. We have the reassurance that rapture of the church will be a glorious event that every one of us ought to be longing for. Finally free from sin. Finally forever in the presence of God. What a comforting doctrine this is. No matter how dark things get, Christ's light still shines. No matter what we have to endure, listen to me, the best for the believer, the best is yet to come. Because this life for the believer is the worst that it's ever going to get. This is the closest we'll ever get to hell for the one who knows Christ. And so we are comforted and filled with hope and encouraged to press on with urgency because Christ was born, Christ died, Christ was raised, and Christ will come again. Let's pray. I'm most gracious Heavenly Father. We thank you so much for your word and how I've unworthily tried to unfold it. And God, we do look forward with great anticipation for the day in which you're going to call your church out of here. Lord, none of us want to think about pain and suffering. We would really, really love to be able to escape death and be a part of the generation that's raptured out of here. 
But regardless, if you see fit to call us home by way of the grave, we thank you, Lord, for the guarantee through the blood of Jesus Christ that not just heaven, but you are our destination. You are the greatest reward that anyone could have. You are our destination and you are our reward. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness for they shall see God. Thank you for that hope. Help us to walk in it, remember it, live it out. Help us to encourage other people, other believers. And God, if you'd see fit to use us to lead other people to Jesus so that they too can have that hope. We give it all to you. In his name we pray. Amen.